0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Explain It To Me Like I'm a 10-Year-Old. Today, I'm very lucky to have Jeff Wise with me. Jeff is a journalist who specializes in writing about aviation, science, and adventure. His articles have appeared in outlets like the New York Times, Business Week, and Popular Mechanics. Jeff recently was featured in the Netflix documentary MH370, The Plane That Disappeared. He's been featured on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox to speak about his work researching MH370. I'm so excited for our interview today. Hi, Jeff. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited. So my first question for you today is, for people who aren't familiar with MH370, what happened that night, as we are certain of, and what still remains a mystery?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so what we do know is that this plane was, uh, it was a red-eye flight. It was supposed to take off on... um, Shortly after midnight on uh, March 8th, 2014, uh, 239 passengers and crew aboard, and it was supposed to fly to Beijing and land the next morning. Um, It's a very routine flight, uh, and when the plane took off, everything was kind of going more or less according to plan. Uh, And it got out, uh, so it was flying to the northeast, it was flying out over the South China Sea, which is the body of water that lies in between Malaysia and Vietnam slash China, that kind of area. And... Just when it got to the edge of Malaysian airspace and was about to be hand over, handed over to controllers uh, in Hanoi, in Vietnam, um, it was uh, Ho Chi Minh City, I should say, not Hanoi. Anyway, it suddenly it disappeared from radar. Uh, And so when so the pass the passengers, uh, family members were waiting to meet them in Beijing and the plane never arrived. And so eventually they figured out that. they, that the plane had actually turned back. It had done a 180 degree hard turn, flown back over the Malaysian Peninsula. And, and it was seen on Malaysian military radar uh, as it flew over a Malaysian airfare space. It went up this body of water called the Malacca Strait and then it vanished again. It left the area of coverage of the M- Malaysian military and it d- disappeared again. So at this point, it, it actually vanished twice. Um, some scientists that, working for a company called um, Inmarsat Looked into their database and, much to their surprise, discovered this plane was sending automated signals to their satellite for another six hours. So, this plane had continued to fly for another six hours. And eventually, they were able to interpret this data to tell them that the plane had either gone to the north or to the south. And then, using some fancy mathematics that that they were able to develop, they decided that this plane had gone south. And so, there was a massive years long search of the Southern Ocean. Um, in a very remote, very deep area of of an ocean that's very stormy. so it was a massive undertaking. They were very the math was very clear. This plane should be there. And yet when they they searched the area, the plane wasn't there. And so in a way, the plane had, had by now sort of disappeared four times, depending on how you count it. And so it's really it's an incredible mystery. Uh, and for all the relatives of the of the crew, And passengers aboard this plane they very much want to know what happened to my loved ones are they dead are they like somewhere else what could what could have happened um and the officials in charge of the search never really said what they thought had happened and so all kinds of you know people were coming out of the woodworks with their theories and and what i was trying to do as a as a journalist and as someone who's interested in science is try to sort of sort through rumor from fact get a real technical understanding of what happened, to try to get a real bead on what are the possibilities and what aren't the possibilities. What Of all the noise that's being generated, what can we just rule out entirely? And so that's basically what I what I tried to talk about in this documentary. And,
0: and, and why did you decide to write about it?
1: Well, I feel like my job as a science communicator is to try to take stuff that is interesting and true, but difficult to understand or maybe not written about enough, and try to bring it to as wide of a public as possible i think that there's a real that there's i, I feel that sort of as, as a broad principle there's an amazing amount of discovery that's happening in the scientific domain that does not cross over into the public discourse and there's various reasons for that but i feel like that is an urgent. you know it's nice to have a sense of purpose in one's life and i sort of feel like that my purpose is to take things that I see in the scientific world that I think the the public would really benefit from understanding and try to, um, try to bring that, bring that to them. So it's a two part process. The first part is to myself understand what's happening, talk to scientists and read papers and so forth. The second part is to to try to try to package it into terms that people can understand. And the, and the, um, the title of your podcast was very is very germane to me because like that, that, that's that's what I spend a lot of my time thinking about is how can I talk about this thing which most people t- sort of tend to uh, tend to shy away from science they think oh it's very boring it's very complicated it's it's a snooze fest and and I think a lot of the, you know what's as a journalist I, I I try to think about why things are boring and how can I how can I avoid that and one of the things that makes things boring is when you the storyteller you yourself doesn't really understand your own story if you're a little murky in what you're talking about you tend to use vague language and you you can't really encap you can't really get to the nub like what's the nub of what we're talking about here and and so I feel like if I can get down to the nub then I can kind of it's like polishing a jewel almost like how, what is the essence of what we're talking about here and how can I get that time is of the essence people's attention is short as well it should be there's so i mean we we have the world's knowledge at our fingertips thanks to mobile computing and so you're you're competing against a, a vast um you know uh, array of 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 information sources some of which are are pretty dubious and some of which are true but you know it's very it's we we are in a kind of uh an age of what i call epistemic crisis and now that might not be a 10 year old word but What it's important, I think it's worth knowing. You're a smart guy, and you're obviously absorbing a lot of information here. But epistemology is the study of how we know what we know. How do we know that something is true? Is it it, is it true if it's in an ancient book that somebody wrote a long time ago? Is it true if we can build instruments to measure it? Um, Is it true if a lot of people will pay a lot of money for it? You know, there's a lot of different potential answers, and and. There, there's none of them are intuitively obvious. And now I have answers that I think are right, but that's just my two cents.
0: You spoke about MH370 in this Netflix documentary, uh, MH370, the plane that disappeared. Could you tell us about what you thought about the documentary? You know, what did it get right? And what did it get wrong?
1: That's a really great question. I mean, on the one hand, it it, it allowed me to kind of, lay out what I thought was really the the fundamental truths about this case that uh, that I appreciated them allowing me to do that, because frankly, um, it has been it is a topic that has been swamped by noise. It's been a lot. There's been a lot of misinformation, a lot of people who 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 are louder than they are <laughs> smart, I think, are well informed. Um, so they let me really kind of lay out, I think, what, what were the facts that we know. Um, I think where what it got wrong is it. It introduced a bunch of um, voices that I think if you watch carefully, you'll understand that they are that the documentary does not intend for you to take these people too seriously. But I get a lot of communications from people saying, oh, how come they didn't talk more about the woman who who saw the debris in satellite photos? And um and 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 I try to explain to them that if you see a like patterns in 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 wave tops or clouds, you know it's a very natural. The, the human brain likes to see patterns, and so if you look at a thousand pictures of clouds, um, you'll see five hundred pieces of airplane debris if that's what you want to see. Um, and I think that I think the documentary did a to be to be brief. They did a good job of of relaying the basic facts of the case they did a bad job in including other stuff that actually should have been more clearly labeled as nonsense. Like it was, it's a dead end. People had this idea. The idea actually didn't pan out. It should not be given consideration. But, and I, and and I think they also tried to, they tried to present three hypotheses as if they were equally valid. That was a mistake. Um, There's actually only two hypotheses that are remotely possible than a 370.
0: Well, one of those hypotheses, which seemed a bit, crazy was the one that the plane was intercepted by a government because it was carrying some sort of technology. Um, what, like, like, how do you, how do you think about some of those other theories that are pretty out there?
1: Well, (laughs) so basically my, the gist of what I'm trying to explain is that there's, there's two possibilities. One, this was hijacked by the pilot and he flew it into the Southern Indian ocean in the world's most complicated and technically sophisticated suicide murder attempt that is generally considered like that, that's, that, that was the, the theory that occupied the first episode of the documentary. The second episode then asked the question, and this is basically the gist of what I personally have been trying to get people to talk about and think about is given that um the plane, that, 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 that the satellite data indicated that the plane went into the Southern Indian Ocean and specifically told researchers where in the Southern Indian Ocean it went and the fact that the plane was not in fact in that location. Can we imagine that potentially this data was somehow corrupted? And if, is there a mechanism by which data was corrupted now i think you it's one thing to have an idea but it doesn't really become a hypothesis unless you have a proposed mechanism and a way to test that mechanism right so the woman parenthetically who said i think the Americans shot it down she's never she's never you know gone so far as to say okay which you know branch of the military like who like what individuals were attached we actually know what brand specifically what military unit shot down mh-17 four and a half months later it was a russian Um, army unit that was under the command of the Russian military intelligence. So we know that that actually happened. This woman never did any of the legwork. She just has this sort of vague notion that the Americans did it, but she really can't take it any further than that. I, I said, listen, if this data could have been tampered with, how could it have been tampered with and who could have tampered with it? Um, And if you if you go down that rabbit hole, it's kind of a long, you know, it's a process. There's there are it's technical, but but it turns out that if it was tampered with, it would result in the plan going to Kazakhstan and it would point the way to Russian intelligence. It would point the way to the same body that shot down MH370's sister plane four and a half months later. So it would, it would it would imply that these two very similar cases actually were perpetrated by the same people, which I don't find to be. I mean, some people say, well, your idea is crazy. I'm like, I don't I don't I don't think that's crazy, actually. I, I think that um, if you have someone who has committed, if there's two crimes are committed that are very similar and you know who committed one of them, I think that person would be your first suspect for the other one. Personally, but some people do think it's crazy. Some people actually get mad at me for talking about this theory. But I'll, what I want to say is like, I'm not I'm not saying I'm definitely right, but I think that, the, but what I point out is that there is a security vulnerability in MH370. There is a mechanism by which this data could have been tampered with. Um, We need to look into that. Now in the show, you have a guy named Mike Exner, who I, who I know, I, I've actually worked with him for years. We know each other quite well. Um, but he says Jeff Weiss is crazy because um, you know you can't you can't operate a plane from the electronics bag, which is a part of my hypothesis. Now I, again, this is probably this is one of the flaws of having a, a TV documentary that has a total runtime of a little bit over four hours. It's like you can't cover everything. So if someone makes an assertion like that, it kind of comes across as like, oh, it's just a true fact because the documentary is telling me, actually nobody knows if you can fly. A plane from the electronics bay i mean it's it's crucial for my theory if it's if if someone can come out and say listen we have the wiring diagrams for boeing triple seven it's definitively impossible then i would concede that 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 is ruled out but that hasn't happened it's just a guy saying in my opinion you can't do it um so so i i said a few minutes ago that there's two possibilities for this plane either the plane flew south and it was hijacked And just and and a whole stream of coincidences caused this a series of strange things to happen, or it was hijacked and it went north, and it was done by the Russians.
0: Could you kind of explain the how and the motive of your theory?
1: Yeah, well, let me talk about motive real quick because the first thing that everybody wants to know, literally every single person that's ever heard this theory says, "Well, what's the motive?" And the thing I need to explain is that I don't we can't get I can't get into people's heads we as humans we it's very satisfying to know what the motive is but motive it, first of all we can't we don't know p- human beings well enough. so the fact that that somebody's a French person might think that the Americans have a motive to shoot down Mh370 is in no way an indication that that, that they did it you know what I'm saying and like we don't know why Russian military intelligence shot down. MH17 some people have speculated it was an accident but I, there's no evidence for that either um so why did russia want to shoot, why why would russia want to take MH370 i can i and i wrote a book about it and i and i have a whole chapter on why they might have wanted to do it um but i i think it's more important just to understand that we don't we don't have to know what someone's motive is it's more important to establish whether they did it or not and as long as the possibility exists that they did it it needs to be considered because this is a huge mystery i argue that it's an important mystery um and the 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 the, 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 op- the options that are on the table right now are both very strange they're very very weird what have people say oh a good explanation is a simple explanation i'm like yeah it's a simple explanation if it matches the data But if you look at the data in a detailed way, you will see that no simple explanation matches. It wasn't. Some people would love to think that there was like a lithium ion battery fire and the pilots had to do do an emergency landing and it went wrong and they wound up flying this course. Um, We know that that didn't happen.
0: Yes. Well, I'd love to hear a bit about your journalism career. Uh, I'm curious, why did you want to become a journalist?
1: Um, I, when I went to college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I, I actually got a, I was in biochem for a while and I thought maybe I didn't really want to be a doctor, but like if I, if I didn't have a better idea, maybe I'd try to do that. I don't think I don't think I would have been a good doctor, but I wound up um, spending most of my time on the school newspaper at Harvard, the Harvard Crimson. And I met some really cool, smart people who, um, you know, I just got a kick out of, I did, I did, I did better at it than some of the other things. I I tried to like do acting. I I was like in a lot of college theater and I really enjoyed it. And I got to work with some really cool, um, some cool folks, um, and and made good friends, but I just wasn't really good at it. Uh, and so I seemed and so my efforts seemed to be more appreciated when I was trying to do journalism, (laughs) And so I wound up moving to New York and then I moved to Hong Kong and I kind of gradually after a couple of years of doing this, I was like, I guess I guess this is what I do because I've been doing it for a few years and I haven't really done anything else. Um, So I moved back to New York, then I moved to L.A. for a while, then I moved back to New York and now I'm settled down. I have a wife and kids and, uh, you know, air crashes keep happening. I keep writing about them. COVID happened. I wrote about that. You know, when you're a journalist, especially a science journalist, it's a really strange time because there's so much information, there's so much great science being done, and yet there's also um, so much misinformation. So much, I mean, it's daunting, frankly, because you're you're fighting these headwinds of people just have have um, people want to believe what they. Want to believe, and so you you get these sort of feedback cycles of of delusion, frankly, where you have people who are like, "I think, I think, you know, vaccines cause COVID," and it's, but but if somebody somebody's going to listen to this and be like, "Jeff, why says vaccines cause COVID?" I'm like, "No, that's not what I think." I think the opposite. I think COVID vaccines protected from COVID, but there's actually a lot of members of Congress and like people with real power positions of responsibility who are who are peddling false information It makes it that much easier, that much harder to talk about real information.
0: And, And as a as a journalist, how do you think about why do you think all this disinformation is so prevalent?
1: I my pet theory, and this is just my pet theory, is that the characteristics of the information environment that we live in um, lends uh, lends itself to delusion in the sense that if you go online looking for reinforcement of your beliefs, you will find it, and you will find communities of people who stand ready to talk. You know, to you can have conversations that people say, "Yeah, of course you're right. Of course, the moon is made of of, of green cheese," and um, you know you you can ask chat gpt say chat gpt is the is the moon made of green cheese and the, <laughs> chat gpt will i mean this is maybe not a true example but it, it, for a lot of things chat gpt will tell you yeah yes here's some here's five reasons why the, the moon is made of green cheese and so we see it on the right where it's used as a weapon um we see it on the left where um people just have their their visions of the world I'm I used to think it was like people were intentionally spreading misinformation for the sake of like gaining political power. Um, and I think there is an element of that, but I think it's deeper than that. I think people actually seek out misinformation. I think people want misinformation that reinforces their worldview.
0: As a journalist, I'm really curious how you deal with criticism because you have put a lot of theories out there and different things that have uh, a lot of people angry.
1: Yeah, people are mad at me. About a lot of things, actually. I've had people get mad. I mean, it's almost like I, I, I sort of want to be where people, I don't want people to be angry at me if they're for, for good reasons, but I want them to be angry at me for bad reasons. And so it's like I wrote I, I did a documentary that aired in 2016 on Showtime called um, Gringo, The Dangerous Life of John McAfee. And it was about this guy who was really beloved. He was kind of a Trumpian sort of larger than life, um, charismatic guy. And he was also a rapist and a murderer. So he was a really, really bad guy. Um, he just loved to cause chaos. He loved to hurt people. He was a really sick individual. Um, but when I wrote about him, you know, he had, he's like Elon Musk. He has like followers who love him because he's like, he was a bad, they loved that he was a bad boy. They loved that he did, that he broke the rules. Um, And so people attack me about that. People have attacked me about lots of things. Yeah. You have to have kind of a thick skin. I, I, And I actually, honestly, I do kind of. I wouldn't say I enjoy it that makes me sound like a psychopath but I mean I do I do feel like um if it so you asked me earlier like what's my um purpose uh, maybe you didn't ask me that but I I I thought you asked me that what is my purpose like why am I a journalist and I and and what I want to do is move the ball I want to I want to I have I have privileged access to information because I'm a journalist and I want to share information that's true and important. And if there are people who are trying to who, who don't want to hear it, who whose bubble is being burst, whose delusion is being challenged, um, I think it's important for me to do that. And so, even if when people are mean, and I but I think that they are they are mean in the defense of 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 bad science, of misinformation. Um, I feel like that that means I'm kind of in the right place. I should be fighting. It should be a fight. We need to fight. We're, the world is in a very dangerous place right now because people haven't been fighting enough. I was recently at a, um, an aviation trade show in Geneva, and, and these young people broke in into the uh, airport, and they chained themselves, they handcuffed themselves to these expensive airplanes. And... You know, we need more that we need people. We need more people chaining themselves to things um, for the sake of things that matter. And global warming is one thing. Democracy is another thing. Um, democracy is under attack right now. And I my kids are are about your age, and I go off sometimes at the dinner table about how we live in really dangerous times. And if we don't get it right, your generation might not have democracy. And if you go to someplace like Turkey or Hungary, you're gonna see it's very hard to dig your way out of an autocratic system. And so we have to, it's really important that we not let it slip out of our hands. Um, and, so your, and so your generation, the people in, sort of in between you and me in terms of age, um, have to fight. We all have to fight or we're going to lose the world that we have. There's things that are good in this world and I want to protect them.
0: If you could pass on to this, this next generation of people the most powerful lessons that you've learned from your career, what would they be?
1: Um The most, I think, important thing to understand is that you're going to, there's people who are above you in the hierarchy. There's people who have newspaper columns, who have TV shows. There's going to be professors and administrators and government officials who are going to say things with great confidence, and you're going to need to be able to judge for yourself whether they're right. And um, and to and to try to judge yourself why they're saying these things, because a lot of people who have power are, are going to do and say things to preserve their power, to preserve their wealth. I would love for your generation to tax the crap out of people like mine, my, my generation. You have a right to this world and there's going to be a lot of people in this world who are going to tell you that you just have to have your little piece. Your little crumb is is enough for you. Um, And so you have to educate yourself and you have to empower yourself. Knowledge is power. Action is power. Understanding is power. Holding together with your with your peeps. Being true and loyal to your group, which means your fellow citizens is power. And don't let anyone take that away from you. You have to educate yourself. But you also can't just feel like whatever you think right now is right. Most of what you believe right now is probably wrong. So go out and find what's true. Learn to judge what's true. That's more than one thing. (laughs) I have lots of advice.
0: That's great. That's great. Thank you so, so much for being here. I I really enjoyed speaking with you.
1: Listen, my pleasure. Hang in there. I love that you're doing this podcast. Power to you. And, uh, you know, I look forward to all the great things I'm going to see from you.